0: The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Brooke Masters, the FT's chief regulation correspondent, and Jennifer Thompson, retail banking correspondent. In this week's podcast, we'll be returning to the issue of payment protection insurance as the bill for mis selling the product tops 11 billion for UK banks. We'll also look at the SIFI surcharge. This is the amount of extra capital that will have to be held by certain global banks. And finally, we'll discuss HSBC after the lender announced that its profits have been hit by a 1 billion charge to cover US fines over money laundering and the PPI affair in the UK. First to PPI. The bill for UK banks embroiled in the selling of this payment protection insurance continues to rise, getting on for 11 billion. We've had the results from all the big UK banks now, so after HSBC's numbers today is it going to stop anytime soon or do you think it's going to continue to to rise inexorably
1: It does look like there's no end in sight. Last week, it got up to 10.8 billion. That's the amount the five biggest lenders have provisioned so far. The big question now is how many years has it got left to run? These quarterly or interim provisions have become a regular feature we've seen from the UK banks. Some data from the FSA and the Competition uh, Commission suggests that customers have handed over at least £34 billion to pay for this type of insurance. Now, that's not to say all of that was missold, of course, but it does give an idea of the scale. You know, 10 billion, it's obviously less than a third of that. And that doesn't even take into account the products that were sold before 2001, which could run into several more million, if not billion. So yes, it does look like for the banks, there's more pain on this yet to come.
0: The numbers we've been talking about obviously exclude the charge that HSBC took today, which was another couple of hundred million. So the overall amount is, as you say, continuing to rise pretty fast. And I think most banks are saying that the kind of pace of new claims from people who claim they've been missold certainly hasn't started to fall. At best, it's kind of leveled off, but it's still coming in thick and fast.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, the banks have always said that it's been very difficult for them to accurately gauge the amount they provision for this because of the fluctuations sometimes just to do with the season. At other times, you know, because people might have heard a little bit more about PPI in the news, the kind of volume of complaints coming through. One interesting thing we did here um, this week from Stephen Hester at RBS was that he said there's been no historical precedent for this kind of mis-selling scandal before and obviously when it's got years and years and potentially billions left to run getting those kind of metrics is going to be important for the banks themselves to take a more proactive role on saying it is going to cost us this amount and it'll obviously be very important for shareholders to to learn about that as well.
0: Just a, a final word on that in terms of the rankings of the banks Lloyd's is still way out there accounting for about half of the provisions taken so far and that's because they had the biggest market share of this type of product.
1: Absolutely yeah I mean Lloyd's they've currently provisioned 5.3 billion following their further 1 billion provision last week and that reflects as you say their market share and also you know how the policies were you know quite aggressively missold by them in the years.
0: Yeah and as we've reported actually Lloyd's seemingly trying to learn the lessons of that by changing the way like some of the banks that they compensate or rather pay their branch based staff to not over enthuse them for selling these types of products in future we should move on to the second topic SIFI surcharges now as regular listeners will know these are the capital surcharges that regulators have imposed or are in the middle of imposing on the biggest banks around the world systemically important financial institutions Brooke you revealed last week the full list of who's going to have to pay what
2: What happened is the Financial Stability Board finally came out with its first official estimates of who's going to have to pay what. We have been reporting all along off leaked drafts the way it was going to be. And what's been really interesting about this is there are now 28 banks in the firing line. They dropped Dexia, which got restructured, and Lloyd's and Commerce Bank, both of which are deliberately trying to refocus as domestic banks so they're no longer systemically important and global.
0: On a global basis, yeah. We should say that these are actually G-SIFIs we're talking about, aren't they? Global, systemically important financial institutions. There will also be domestic SIFIs as deemed by their local regulators. That is correct. But
2: the 28 big banks left on the list, to replace the ones they dropped, they added BBVA of Spain and Standard Chartered, who were each assigned the lowest possible surcharge of 1% on top of the Basel III minimum of 7%.
0: Just a a quick thing. There's there's always been a kind of disagreement between different banks and and commentators over whether it's a good thing or a bad thing to be deemed a G-SIFI, because there's the argument, obviously, that on the negative side, you have to hold higher levels of capital. But On the positive, arguably, you are deemed, well, it's a kind of almost a a badge of honor, but also it maybe gives you more explicit government support, really, in terms of crisis.
2: I think there's a lot of sense that it's actually more positive than negative at this point, if you can keep your surcharge low enough. For example, right now, the French banks, I think, are very pleased that all of them, their surcharges dropped a bit because they have carefully... Delevered and gotten rid of some of their highest risk assets, which carry the biggest surcharge.
0: By the same token, StanChart and BBVA were not
2: displeased
0: about being added to the list.
2: BBVA actually said this is a recognition of how we're in 30 countries. um, I think we had heard, in fact, that for both StanChart and BBVA, it was a bit of a marketing problem that they weren't SIFIs, because the the banks they compete against are.
0: So, in practical terms, though, this means, I suppose, very little for the time being, because A, the 7% Basel III requirement doesn't come in for some time. But it starts to be introduced from next year gradually. But at the moment, I guess all the banks are on target to be way ahead of what those minimums are anyway.
2: At the place that's had the biggest impact is actually Bank of America, which unexpectedly dropped from 2.5% to 1.5%, which means they're actually there. They're one the first US bank to get there. And they wouldn't have been there, Under the old expectations.
0: What was, apart from obviously very good lobbying, what was behind them uh, managing to cut their tally?
2: The way you calculate the SIFI surcharge is both the size, the sheer size of the bank and Bank of America has been shrinking, but also... It's still pretty damn big. It's still big, um, There are, but there are five categories, and, and some of that you get sort of... If you cut your derivatives book, for example, you get double credit because you shrink overall and you shrink your derivatives book. Right. So B of A, which has really consciously tried to get rid of some of Merrill Lynch's crazier stuff, got disproportionate effect from that. You can see the same thing happening with the French banks who are getting rid of the same kinds of stuff. So credit ag... BNP Paribas and Sakjan all had the same benefit, although not they, they dropped by half a percentage point rather than a full percentage point.
0: Our final topic for today, HSBC, results out early on Monday and broadly in line with expectations, I think it's fair to say, with a few kind of blips around the edges, a few bigger exceptional items in certain areas than had been expected. Jennifer you've been taking a look at the numbers and I suppose the standouts really are PPI provisions as we've mentioned being another 353 million dollars 200 and something million pounds and far more notable I suppose the 800 million top-up charge they've taken to provision for these expected settlements in the US over money laundering accusations.
1: Yeah that's absolutely right I mean obviously it's a fairly large blip the 800 million dollars more than doubling the amount they'd already provisioned to potentially settle a fine with US regulators. We're not sure what the size of that fine is likely to be. But they did say at the time of the initial 700 million provision, that it'd be very large, it could well go beyond 700. And again, today, they've warned that it's likely to be substantial.
0: Yes, and even saying it could be substantially more than the $1.5 they provision. Brooke, what what do you see as the likely kind of course of action from now? We've, We've had hints from some officials in the US that a settlement could come even before Christmas. So, I mean, that they've actually put a substantial sum on this suggests from an accounting point of view that they have to have some idea of the number.
2: It would certainly make sense that they're trying to get it done in this calendar year, because mm. if you've provisioned in this calendar year, you want to use it in this calendar year. Otherwise, it becomes problematic.
0: And I guess they would also be keen to t- settle it from their point of view before any U.S. administration change happened on the back of a, a U.S. election.
2: The U.S. side would like to get it done before there's a turnover. But remember, turnover in the U.S. is not actually on January one; it's on January twentieth. And so they have a bit, so more, time. Have a bit more time. They could time, allow though. it to they could allow it to bleed over. But from an accounting point of view, it, in general, banks tend to vision in the quarter before they announced the actual settlement because it just makes more sense from an accounting point of view.
0: Our understanding is that they took a 700 million charge, I think it was in Q2, at which point they knew it was going to be a substantial issue, but they hadn't at that point talked to US officials in any great detail at all about the amounts concerned. That's what's changed. That's why they've kind of doubled basically what they've got. They've had conversations and they think on the basis of that, they can estimate what the total settlement's more likely to be, although, as we said, could be substantially higher than 1.5 billion. That is obviously one of the things that's hanging over the share price, which slipped a bit today. In terms of the underlying results, though, Jennifer, looking pretty encouraging, especially in their heartland kind of emerging markets, business in Asia thriving.
1: The underlying profits have more than doubled, but there are still a couple of black clouds on the horizon. They raised their PPI charge by $350 million, taking it to just under $2 billion. And also today, they revealed that more job cuts could be on the horizon. They'd set a target for shedding around 30,000 staff, which they have done over the last 18 months. But some of those have come from divestments, which means that potentially you've got another 10,000, 15,000 job cuts waiting to happen over the next year or so.
0: I guess from a shareholder point of view, that might be seen positively in the sense that in terms of their important cost income ratio, that gives them a little bit more leverage to to come down on that number. I think on an underlying basis, they're down to about 54% compared to a target that they had of 52. They've said today that when the targets were set, they had a brighter outlook for particularly Eurozone economy and uh, the global economy more generally so that Any advance from that 54 below 52 is really unlikely to come very much from the revenue side, which is now looking bleaker, but maybe from those further cost cuts. So that'll be something I'm sure um, the market will be watching very closely. On the impairment side, I suppose, is generally good news because we're seeing globally really a fall in HSBC's impairment charges as partly as they kind of pull back from their troubled US operations in credit cards and subprime lending. But that's not the case everywhere.
1: Yeah, I mean, overall, at a group level, their lending is looking safer. But in Brazil, what we're seeing is loan impairment charges on the rise at the same time as revenues are slowing. So they're not getting the benefit offset by that.
0: Yes. So I guess that's an, another key point that people will be watching. The share price, as I said at the beginning, has dipped slightly, but I suppose compared to the other UK banks, which all of which reported last week, HSBC still looks by far and away the, the strongest performer, and certainly in terms of a UK presence. I'm excluding Standard Charter from that equation, I suppose. How would you compare the relative performances of all the banks?
1: I suppose shareholders might see a Philip mimicking that of a global peer like UBS last week, you know, in common if they're retrenching. It might give us a, a sort of some benefit. Uh, that they, they shared more jobs and crucially it'll be you know, getting their return on equity hopefully up, which also took a sharp hit um, on the results today.
0: That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Brooke and Jennifer for their contributions and thank you for listening. You can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com. Banking Weekly was produced by Nalini Sivathasan. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.